Welcome to Pastel's podcast on Stephen King. And we have that little on Stephen King at the end because someday there will probably be other Pastel's podcasts. So not to freak you out, we're not there yet. But, you know, we've got some ideas in the works. So we do actually. We have uh, just like CBS, we also have mid-season replacements uh, as we've already planned. Uh, maybe this is a little sneak peek. But as we've already planned, you know, this season, our first season will end with uh, the adaptation of The Body. Of course, Rob Reiner's absolutely exquisite Stand By Me. Uh, But we've planned a kind of in-between season filler thing uh, that we're going to do called Does It Hold Up? We're going to take some movies from our childhood. We're going to watch them together and we're going to talk about whether or not those hold up. So, yeah. Um, okay, so we are, I forgot to do it last time, but we were talking about Christine uh, today, which is the story of an evil car that uh, a boy named Arnie essentially falls in love with. That's the movie version. Anyway. That's, um, that's the one short of And is this the only evil uh, car Stephen King story? No. No, it is not. Um, actually... Two more? There is, is two. two. There is two. There's, two. there's yeah. a from a Buick eight, and then yes. there's I can't remember the other one. It was a short, was a short story. It was a short story. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember what it's called. It's very good, but um, honestly, they're all really good. Um, I really liked from a Buick eight. I think I read it when I was twelve, and it was just because I randomly picked it up as a book at a bookstore with my grandma. It was one of I was probably on my like first ten. Stephen King books that I read, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah. See, I read it a little bit older, but yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit weirder. It's a little bit more dark tower sure. than um than Christine. Mm-hmm. So it really is a whole different vibe. But uh, but anyway, so we're talking about cars. So Dave, dream car. Uh, all right. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna pull out my phone. The uh, brand new Google Pixel Fold, not a sponsor. Um, because I, because believe it or not, I have a list. I know what my absolute dream car is, and it's a 1977, I believe, uh, Lincoln Continental. It is the car that uh, Morpheus drives in the Matrix. Uh, it's the very last, like, common release vehicle that had the rear suicide doors. Uh, it's an absolute beautiful tank of a fucking car, and I've always loved it. Uh, but yeah, I can't find the list that I... Oh, there it is, there it is, there it is. So, 1967 Lincoln Continental, a 1953 International R165, which is a big-ass truck, a 2011 Saab 95, and a 2016 Land Rover Discovery. Those are my dream cars, but with the absolute dream being the 67 Lincoln Continental for sure. What about you? Are you a car guy? So I'm like, so that's what, yeah, it'll be a total contrast because I'm not really a car person, but it's not to say that I haven't had. So the history of cars. If you say a 1987 Blazer, I swear to God. That's stupid. It's a 1990 Blazer. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> awesome. Fucking tank. No, I, I, okay, I'll just go through the history, the brief history of cars that I ever really 
thought were cool that I would want, which, you know, is not a ton. But okay, so um, this one, okay, so I think this is interesting because Back to the Future trilogy was always, it's still, it's still the most perfect trilogy. I'm not saying it's the best trilogy. I believe that it is, but it's the most perfectly integrated trilogy. I'd probably agree with you even on the best part, to be honest, but carry on. It's but anyway, um, they he had his dream car and that's the Toyota, um, which yes. with the Toyota truck. And see, by the time that we were in high school, it still hadn't really changed styles that much from from that. You know, so there sure. was a time, you know, the well, I don't even know if they call it a Tacoma then, but they did not early on pickups like the late i can't remember when they swapped the name because i think even in the 90s it was just a pickup or or not the 90s the 80s it was just a pickup that didn't really have a name but in the early 90s it went through a regular cab and extended cab version that have the funniest name because they are not connected to uh the terminator universe but it was referred to as the t100 oh yeah i do remember. Yep. yeah there was like yeah there'd be like the the uh, letter that a number that was like mm-hmm. yeah so um so yeah i still so there were still a lot of trucks that looked at least somewhat like that so sure. that, was the, that was the first one i remember being like probably right before Right before I met you, which was I don't know, sixteen, something like that. Yeah, that was that was kind of yeah. what was in my mind. Um, and then, and then by the time I was actually thinking about getting a car, I don't know if I really cared. It was kind of like, oh yeah, I was gonna get I was gonna get the Cavalier, which is not something that I wanted, but it was a new car. And they're like, I don't know no, if anyone in this world has ever wanted a Chevy Cavalier. But it was like, it's just the car you bought. But we bought it in like '02, and they're like, well, you're gonna be driving like next year. So I was like, okay, well, like a new car, that's cool. And then now, I don't know. Now it's kind of, you know, what's okay? My dad, father of the podcast, uh, father of the podcast, uh, drives motorcycles, and so I've always kind of wanted to get my my motorcycle license. I've just kind of afraid to do it um i know that aaron has motorcycles but i've literally never seen him on one so i i have this conflict in my head between him driving just like a big ass hog harley davidson or a fucking ducati and i can't decide which one it is yeah it's they're more yeah it's usually not anything so big it's usually more slimmer but um, he's got, um, but he's got one, he, he just got it. It's a Royal Enfield and I don't know the model. It's like this beautiful blue color. And I was, I saw it and I'm like, holy shit. I want that. I want that one. And I can't remember which, oh, I think it's the, I think it might be the classic 350, I think, but it's in this blue color. Anyway, I was like, I kind of want to get my motorcycle license and get one of those. And it's like, you can get it brand new and it's like, you know, five grand or something. like. Sure. But, but be honest with yourself. What are the betting favorites on your wife allowing you to get a motorcycle? So this is a conversation (laughs) that we've had a little bit and, uh, and I kind of feel this way too. I honestly don't know if I would ever drive it on the freeway because like, but if you were rolling through town, like the gas mileage alone, you could if, if you were just going through town, you could fill it up in March and have to get gas again in June. Right. That's what I mean. I mean, like driving around town, like going to the library or something like that or wherever, you know, like I could like I feel like I could do that. And she's cool with that. Um, OK, so let's get into Christine. So Sounds good. so this was at the time. 
the record uh, for the fastest turnaround from novel publication to film release. Um, the movie went into production before the book was released. Yeah, it was, or it was like, yeah, because it says, it was kind of vague, but it's filming started in April of 83. The book was published in April, on April 29th, 1983. Yeah, it, it's 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 days, but apparently production started before. It's you know, and and by the end, I think it's released in December, I believe, which already is insane. Um, you know, and so, but by the end of the year, there's the hardback, there's the paperback tie-in edition, and there's just the regular paperback. By the end of the year, which usually it's at least a year now before you're gonna get a paperback. And there's three different versions of the book. It's it's insane. Um, and the reason for that um, was our old friend Richard Kobritz, who nobody probably remembers, but he produced Salem. He produced Salem's Lot, and had a lot. He I think he was the one who stepped in after change from a feature film to a miniseries, and so he did a lot of the um, decision making. I don't remember if it was his choice to to use. Um, Toby Hooper or not, but it's interesting because he had John Carpenter in mind from the beginning. That was his. So I'm like, if that's the case, he's got a, you know, fairly good track record, even though Salem's Lot didn't turn out that great. I mean, solid hire. But anyway, Richard Kobritz, he so anyway, but Stephen King had enjoyed working with him um, on Salem's Lot for what it's worth. King at the time felt it was kind of. Okay, you know, um, probably in time, his opinion might have changed. But um, but anyway, he'd enjoyed working with him. So ever since that time, he had sent him his pre-publication manuscripts. So he, he sent him the rough drafts of the books, um, uh, you know, every everyone after Salem's Lot. So he so he had sent him Cujo and he passed on that one. But Boyle falling in love with a car, evil car. He was down. He's DTF for that one. And so, um, yeah, so he bought it like before the book was published. I think well before the book was published. Um, yes. And um, and so thus, that's why you're getting them in production uh, pretty much simultaneously. Um, and so, yeah, he formed so Kobritz. He formed this new production company, Polar Films, and he bought the rights to the film. Like I said, he always had John Carpenter in mind because um, he had worked. Well, I don't know if there was it's probably not just because, but. He had worked with him on Somebody's Watching Me, which I still have never seen. But the John Carpenter film that, you know, many people have not watched. But The Completionists, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, he had worked with him on that movie, which was pre-Halloween. Um, and then obviously, you know, he was very successful with uh, Halloween and writing Halloween, too. Um, um, but the interesting thing was that he had just done The Thing, which, of course, now everyone's like, how fantastic and awesome is The Thing. But it was a box office failure, so it really kind of reduced his clout because he was on a good run. I don't remember how successful The Fog was, but I feel like it did well enough. But The Thing was kind of a relative failure box office wise. So he was in pre-production on Firestarter um, for Universal and 
But because the budget was getting out of control and then the concerns over him being a moneymaker, essentially, um, kind of just collapsed the project. So Firestarter fizzles out. But he did. I think he did wind up producing the Firestarter remake. So like 30 years later, you know, just like Carpenter, you would, uh, Carpenter I believe he produced it. I could be wrong, but I feel like that I'd heard he kind of finally got around to being involved with it but um anyway so he jumps pretty much straight to uh christine um because Colbert has him in mind and um and bill phillips did you, i feel like you had a note on bill right i can't remember. um bill phillips who wrote the screenplay he had done a rewrite of firestarter um for a carpenter and apparently he liked it so um and because by this time i was looking it up by this time he's i don't know i should have looked this up but he's doing um his own script writing i don't know if he's just because i think with the fog i feel like the fog might be the first one or the thing i don't remember but at some point by this time i guess he's gotten away from gotten away from writing his own scripts but i don't know i don't i don't know if he ever writes his own script again um it's interesting but um but yeah anyway bill phillips wrote it um it was a 10 million dollar budget which for context you know wasn't then and still isn't a ton although blumhouse movies are made for like five million now so you know i would like to say on that it's a ton when you consider that 15 percent of the budget specifically just spent on the cost we'll see that's probably your answer why the next note was that no big names were really even considered yeah because they didn't have the money for it they spent 15 percent of 10 million to buy a handful of plymouth Furies. yeah which is all because um blame it all on the king because he said that he he picked it because they were mostly forgotten and they hadn't been you know they, they hadn't been um What's the word? Not euthanized, eulogized, you know, in like other movies or songs. Yeah. And so they did. That's actually a note that I have in here at some point was they had to track down 24 of them in various states to put together 17. <laughs> so tells you what the state of some of those 24 were. And I think that's the best thing. 15% of the budget. 24 cars. By the time the film was done shooting, they had two left. And of those two, one of them sold in 2014, I think it was, for $104,000. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, yeah, you see some of the damage they do with these things. But, um, yeah, so eventually they get 17 together. Um, and uh, the film is set in California. And I knew that the novel was set was set um, not in New England. Anyway, but so it is a deviation, but it it's not so... Yeah, it's set in California, which is a deviation from the book, but not as much as you might think, because it's not set in New England. Um, it's set in Pennsylvania and uh, didn't really figure out why that was exactly. Um, not that you have to have a great reason, but King pretty much right, writes where he lives for the most part, which is New England, Florida and Colorado. He was living in Colorado at the time. That's that's why it's in Colorado. Um, there's even even some of his short stories are set in London. That's when he was living in London. So I mean, he's very much where he lives kind of writer. So I'm not sure why Pennsylvania was there. Um, but he does say in an interview in the 80s, they asked him about that, how it didn't really seem to connect to his other New England books. 
And he does say on a note, because there's pretty much always a connection. So Arnie is uh, eventually he starts working for Darnell so he can afford to take the scrap to fix his car. And he goes on like runs for him. And apparently in the book, he goes on this firework run, which is not in the movie. And he goes through Stovington, Vermont, which is where Jack Torrance taught before he beat the shit out of some kid. And um, that's where the plague, I think the fictional um, CDC plague center was. There was one in Atlanta, I think, but there was the one in Vermont um, as well. So there's always there's almost always a connection, uh, however small. But anyway, the film's set in California and doesn't have anything to do with that stuff. But um, and yeah, that's that's mostly it. Um, it's shot not only in California. It's well, at least his neighborhood is shot in South Pasadena. When Carpenter was he said that he fell in love with South Pasadena. Uh, when he was filming Halloween, so it's yeah. I was gonna say, wasn't it shot in the same? Yeah, it's like area and it's, as, and I feel like it's. I don't know how big of an area that that um, because there's that. It's that classic neighborhood that looks like every neighborhood in America. It's and it doesn't look like California at all. So yeah, it's shot in that same um, that same area and. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. Okay. Okay. One more thing, and then and then if you have any more, uh, we can we can get on um, and then to yeah. to the main part. But one thing. We tend to die a whole bit. Yeah. 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 This is the last thing. Um. Probably. Okay. So we've talked up to this point about how he's written a lot of scripts that don't get used. King has written a lot of scripts sure. that never get used, and so this one, I don't remember. I didn't check. I believe he gets the credit for Pet Cemetery. I think. I think he gets the credit for that. But other than the original films that he did, obviously, um, other than that, when it comes to adaptations, I don't think he ever writes another script. And so and he, there's a quote where he says, this is a fantastic quote. He says, to do a script of a novel that you wrote is like sitting on a suitcase that's full of shit and trying to get it on an airplane. It's a stupid business and I won't do it anymore. So by this time, he's written a lot of scripts and he's pretty burnt out on it. Eventually, he's going to make his own original scripts, um, but uh, not really for main studios anymore. The only other adaptation that he does at this point is after this, uh, if this is when that quote came out, is of course Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, no, I think it's he, around. Writer, I think director, it's around the same but, time that he's yeah, that he's doing sure, that. Sure. Um, sure, sure. So, yeah, and then I guess he technically adapted um, Lisey's story. I believe he. Yes. He, I think he adapted. So that but that was like his his baby yes. so he wasn't gonna let anyone touch that one um which is telling because he lets everyone touch everything you know when it comes to everything else so anyway that's what i got especially his penis i was like that was kind of set up for that um, his penis. i was there yeah uh so the thing that i had was like this was um like in the early times when they really started to care about what 
rating they were going to get. And it's not like they didn't care before, but this was the time where they really started to aim for a specific rating. Like, I think we're still pre-PG-13, as most people probably know, is that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is the first movie to create... It is the movie that created the PG-13 rating. Uh, so, but Bill Phillips, John Carpenter, Stephen King, the producers, everyone knew that they wanted this movie to be rated R. But when it came to the book and when it came to adapting it, there was not enough violence in the movie to deem a rate an R rating. And honestly, watching it, most of the violence is kind of campy and kind of shown off screen much in a... Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it's like you see the guy waving around the chainsaw, but most of the deaths happen off screen, which was very popular in that point in time. And honestly, to me, more suspenseful and kind of more interesting. But so because of that, he just added in aggressive use of the F word and its counterparts so that like the way that I put it is like I thought I was watching a John Carpenter movie not listening to a Limp Bizkit song and it was like when I noticed I was like that's kind of weird so then when I researched it I'm like oh they specifically went out of their way to use fuck as often as possible because that was the only way that they deemed appropriate to hit the R rating that they wanted the only thing the only way this makes sense in my mind is is that it's Stephen King it's John Carpenter and it's a horror movie, and so maybe the studio is already expecting an R, and, and they just, they're like, well, we don't want a PG-13 John Carpenter, you know? To me, that's what it's got to be as well. It's a John Carpenter adaptation of a Stephen King movie. If it's not an R-rated movie, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, I feel like yeah. that's, which make, it, it does make a lot of sense. Which, you know, but it's very like, yeah, but especially, well, no, pretty much all John Carpenter. I mean, it's not... You know, even like Halloween. I mean, it's very... You hardly see anything. Sure, but the violence is way more... Subjective is not the right word, but way more implied. No, it's for sure. Yeah. For sure. And and I, and I get it. But still, I feel like it had to be borderline because there's, there's nudity. I think that one's the... There's a little bit of nudity with the sister, I think. I think you see like a breast, yes. maybe. Uh, at the very beginning, you see, like, some side boob and shit like that. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's what definitely gave it an R. But other than that, it's really wow. not that. But anyway, um, yeah. So I guess let's get into the uh, the meat. Wow. Okay, so here's where I get with my notes. We're starting in the very intro credits. That's where I like to start. Let's start at the beginning. That's the very best place to start. The intro credits, mostly silent, which is already a weird thing to me, except for that start of the superb John Carpenter uh, score that you get in most John Carpenter movies because he's exceptional at it. Like, But what you get more so than the music, at least at the very start, is you get the credits rolling and engines revving, which I get why it's there, but it's just so kind of odd because it's mostly silent. Like, it's, it's the right thing to do, but it's mostly silent because you're just getting the intros of the song and then the revving. So while I enjoyed this movie a lot, I just, I, I, I don't know. I think it's 80s era intro scenes. I just don't like that much. But it's yeah, I could. Yeah, we're just we're just totally opposite, which I think is it could be fun. You know, (laughs) so we're just already like complete opposite because I made the exact opposite note, which was that uh, because 
okay, we're dealing with a killer car. And and so I feel like it, it especially in the adaptation, it shines out more than it does in the book. That there's times when it's like, mm, okay, but they lean into it a little bit, right? And so I feel like I liked the car noise at the beginning, which, I mean, I could see people just being like, Ugh. but I liked it. And then I did like... I did like the silent credits, and I think it was okay for me because they were quick. It was like there was this, that was there was the revving, right? The revving, but it was just a little bit, and then I don't know what it was because yeah, you think like Halloween or something, you're gonna hear like this awesome fucking music, and there is an awesome, but I realized it comes in way late. Um, yeah. John Carpenter score doesn't really come in until like 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, and I didn't Once remember. It does, it's so good. So good. And yeah, and I'll talk about my favorite scene later, but um, but it's yeah, so I, I don't know. It was it was fast. It was like, yeah, maybe like 45 seconds. And I don't know. I just I just liked it. Um I don't I don't really know why. I just I don't know the vibe. Like it just went it was some of the fastest credits that I've seen in a while. It was like yeah, it was. You know, I don't know what it was. Yeah. I just it, it felt, which I don't know. I felt like that was on, I don't know. There was, it just was like, we're cruising. I don't know what it is. I just kind of liked it. Um, they play bad to the bone. This is them really, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of song lyrics in the book. And I don't remember if this is one of them. Um, but it's like a little bit of the leaning into it where I think it's a little bit more campy than the novel is going to be. I'm not um, going to say that I'm not a fan of it because yeah, it's a song, but I don't know that I necessarily liked it so much because it's even carried through the rest of the movie that, uh, Christine, the radio, like, uh, Lee says this later that it's so weird that when they're making out and the radio turns on or whenever they're turning on the radio, it only plays these old songs from the fifties and things like that, which is not George Thorogood and the destroyers. It's just fucking not. So, like, I understand inserting it for the popularity of the time, but for the whole rest of the ethos that you get in the car, playing Bad to the Bone does make a goddamn sense. But does it sense. play on the car, or is it just it playing? It doesn't, but still, it plays an association to the car. I feel like you could have found a 50s song that had at least a portion of that energy to it. It's very... Like, I get it? I like it, but just for... The car. I think I would have liked it if they would have just found something that came out of that era. I know it's not playing from the radio, but I think it would. I think it would have been possible to find something from that era that would work better. That was probably the rule. Uh, Christine's like, I wouldn't fucking play this shit, but um, yeah. But, Christine, uh, not a fan of early '80s uh, rock music, but um, oh, uh, okay. So I was. So I realized that. Um, I hadn't well because I had the Blu-ray, so I actually watched the Blu-ray, which is I think uh, the first on time that I, we have the same exact. Like I wanted to show off the uh, the uh, Steelbook Blu-ray that I have, but you beat me to it because we have the same fucking one. Oh yep. yeah, I know it's beautiful, and it so is. I I was I watched it last night. <laughs> um, and it's cool. I watched it this afternoon. Yeah, I was like, I think we're on the same page with slacking. Um, but um, yeah, so I watched it. Uh, I watched it last night, and it got over. And then I was looking. I, I wasn't planning on watching any of the special features, but I was just messing around with it. And it said there was um, um, commentary by John Carpenter. And now you got David Gordon Graham ahead, but I think it's just no. It, 
David Gordon? Keith Gordon? I don't remember. Maybe it's Keith Gordon. Keith Gordon is the actor who played uh, Artie. Yeah, Artie. yeah, yeah. So yeah. He, and he and he, yeah. So they're both commentating. I was like, wow, shit, I should really listen to this. And I fell asleep about 20 minutes into it. But I did get a fun tidbit, which was that that whole opening scene, I believe, is just a total add-on. Like, it's not in the book. And... Um, well, no, it's no. I know it's not, um, and so because in the book the car is not more or less the car is not born evil. Where they make it evident that it's born evil here, and sure. so but the inspiration for the scene where one of the workers gets in the car for reasons I don't really understand, um, and you know he dies, and I also don't really understand how he dies either. But but I don't think you're meant to because like. It looks like he's getting into the car just for his lunch break because he literally just climbs and turns on the radio and he's smoking a cigar, right? And the only reason, at least, at least, understandably, the only reason why the car kills him is because he ashes his cigar yeah, right yeah, under the seat. Was, yeah, that's what I was thinking. But, 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 like, I was expecting when I was watching the scene, I was like, oh shit! When they come over, he's just gonna fall out, fall out as a burned up char, charred mess, like spontaneous combustion. But instead, he's just dead. Right, then he doesn't look super like dead. For the killer car thing, it makes sense when the car, when the dude's like, except except for the fact that it totally doesn't make sense because the dude is trying to make sure the car is in pristine condition that it eats his fucking hand. But it makes more sense that the car eats his fucking hand than it just randomly kills a guy for smoking the cigarette cigar on the right. car. So, yeah. yeah, but but okay, but the inspiration for it was um, an idea from Hitchcock where he said. Now, I don't. Yeah, he never did this. But the idea was that you were going to watch a car be assembled on the line piece by piece from the very beginning. You were going to see the whole thing assembled. It gets to the end of the line and a body falls out of the trunk. And yeah, I guess yeah. that was I could see how that would be good. Yeah, that's part of the inspiration for for the idea. And I feel like. They cut the supernatural. Well, I mean, other than the fact that it's an evil car that drives itself. Other than that supernatural element, they cut a further <laughs> supernatural element. Um, you know, and so you know they cut is, the haunting element, which right, and so is important to the book. But as we kind of talked about earlier, isn't necessarily important to the movie. No, I think it's okay. Yeah. And um, so the car is born bad now. Um, which a lot of people probably think that anyway. So um, that casual fans of it, um, you know, so uh, but anyway, so it's born bad. So this is this is the scene where, you know, it is born bad. And I feel like it's a great scene. Um, and they also talked about how they shot it with a different filter or a different film than they shot the rest of the film with. Um, it was like a softer film that would look more nostalgic, essentially. So. Um, that and that is the extent of what I got off the Blu-ray commentary before I fell asleep. Um, anyway, FYI, Sick. yeah. Uh, as we go into the movie, like we're now, of course, introducing Arnie and his family, and I have to put this note up uh, up at the top because it really is, it really is the rest of the movie, and I'm not knocking the movie. John Carpenter's direction is fire. The movie itself is very good. 
the actors, though not the best actors in the entire world, do what they can with their, their skills. skills. Say something wrong. <clears throat> but but no, no, I'm not. <laughs> every single thing about this movie, every character is acted this way. Every word is written this way and everything that happens is done this way. Probably specifically because that's how they wanted it. But everything is fucking ridiculous and absurd. Every character is far more over the top than they need to be. It's not bad, don't get me wrong. It's great because of it. But they are far more over the top than they need to be. You get, uh, at the very beginning, the very first thing you see is Dennis rolling up in his car. Beautiful, I think, 66 Challenger. Honking his horn while playing music, trying to get Arnie to come out. And Arnie's mom, who's probably the most ridiculous fucking character in the movie... No, that's not true. There are a couple more ridiculous characters. But Arnie's mom comes out, and she just... and, and, and She's she's holding on to Arnie's lunch, which isn't as explained at the moment. So she just walks out with a paper bag in her hand. And she just starts yelling at Dennis, like, you know what you're doing? That's noise pollution. You might as well be dumping trash in my front lawn. And, look, this is their kid's best friend, and that's how you... and, and, and it's like two thirds of the way through the movie before she even references like you're his best friend. Why don't you help him? And the, the majority of the beginning of the movie, they treat him like he's fucking dirt. Yeah. And yeah. And I don't really see why that needs to be. But it doesn't. <laughs> it, it's just, but it's funny because the, the same moment or the same scene um, it, and this where it leans into the. It leans into the campiness a, a bit. I mean, this could have been from the book, but seeing it on film was kind of different. The garbage bag. Arnie comes the garbage bag trash. breaking. I'm he like, barely gets out there. And the, well, and this is why the lunch bag in his mom's hand is so fucking ridiculous. Because he walks out there, the trash bag just rips, and he's like, wah, wah. And his mom's like, you know what? No, it's fine. We'll clean it up. And then and, and he's like, okay, cool. Thanks, mom. And then he goes to get in the car with Dennis. And in the middle of cleaning up, she's like, wait, Arnie, you forgot your lunch. It's like, so what is it? <laughs> is he supposed to take out the, the trash? Like, what is he doing? What What's Arnie's role in life? Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, he takes the guy job, but she makes the lunch. Yeah, I, and I didn't have a ton of notes for a while here because the movie... Like, I think this is one of those ones, like, kind of like Dead Zone before, where the movie is just good. So I'm enthralled in the movie, and as I'm writing notes, it's just because I'm nitpicking at shit. Yeah, I think I do have probably more notes than you do, but yeah, in this part of the you movie... You tell me if your next notes are before the shop fight. If your next notes are before the shop fight... I have you one. Take the lead. You take the reins for a have, minute. I only have one. I only have one, and it's it's not going to be long because it's just a quote. So they get in the car. Mm-hmm. I think it's directly following that scene. They get in the car. They're driving, and he talks about, "Hey, we're going to get you laid this year." Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and he talks about God. I should have wrote down her name, but anyway, Dennis, his best friend. Okay, so. Audience, we have Arnie, we have Dennis, Dennis, the best friends, and that's pretty much all the characters you yes, need to know. I can't that. remember the girl's name, but I think it's inconsequential because they never throw show the character either. Mm, I know it's not coming to me, um, but yeah. So anyway, uh, so Dennis and Arnie are in the car talking about um, Dennis is talking about trying to get him laid, and he mentions some girl 
and there's like a nickname, whatever, her having a mustache. Um, and then he, and then Arnie says, or I think he says that, oh, she's got a mustache or something. And then he says, what do you care if you got a little hair in your mouth? And, you know, just a little suggestive line there that kind of st- stuck out to me. Way to go, Bill. Um, Way to go, Bill. And, you know, Bill or, or Steven, I don't, I don't know. Um, it kind of feels a little like Bill. I don't know. It feels a little it, more. It kind of feels a little Steven like Steven, too. too let's be honest. Our, our boy King likes crew No, for sure. Definitely. That's the thing. It's just that he kind of, he mixes this, like, you know, I can't like like um, serious like horror kind of literature with just ridiculous, you know, like sure. gross out. Like he's also that guy. So yeah, it definitely could go either way. Um, so he's both the Stephen King that you think he is, and he's also completely not. Um, so, but any anyway. So yeah, I think after that. There's the introduction of Kelly Preston, which may or may not be before the shop scene. It, it, it is before, but because of what you just said, I had to think about. I think it's a Chuck Palahniuk quote, but I could be fucking wrong. But it's ta- it, it, he he quoted saying that uh, taste is taste and humor is humor. A person can be a wino and a connoisseur at the same time. That's a good yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, I liked that for it's like yeah, sure. King likes a good dick and fart joke, but he also can write a soliloquy if he needs to. I mean, yeah, that that, that, yeah. that pretty much sums it up exactly. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so you know, and not really much about Kelly Preston other than at some point Dennis, she's really coming on to Dennis. And like several times. Oh, yeah, yeah crazy artist. And then there's the new girl, which God, I don't remember what Lee. the character's name is. Lee. Lee. Yeah, that's right, Lee. Um, there's Lee, and then it, you know he just like totally passes her by um, to go with this other chick, and it's like Kelly Preston. Really? Are we are really doing this? Um, you know she. She's, she's, you know, she's ready for you, man. You know, whatever. Um, you know, but but she says, but the one note I have about Kelly Preston is that she says to Dennis in the hallway, like at his locker or something, she says something like, do you want to go with me? I can't remember. And then she's like, TTFN. And I'm like, we got yeah, a, a, a Winnie the Pooh so, reference here? Yeah, that that was my thought, too, is like, is, is Kelly Preston the voice of Tigger? Yeah, is this like, Tigger now? TTFN? Like, really? I was like, yeah. Um, but uh, R.I.P. Kelly Preston, that was my answer. Yeah. Uh, so are you comfortable with me going on my shop fight right now? Yes, and also because that will sort of tie in with what I was just saying. So sure. yeah, go ahead. Sure. So, uh, let me get in here. So, there are a lot of things that are ridiculous about the shop fight. So, it's set up because Dennis is like, hey, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you at lunch after he's done talking about the girls. There's a couple little things that happen in between them, but not a whole lot. And then all of a sudden, uh, Dennis is sitting out there just in a field, minding his own business, looking around. He's like, hmm, wonder what's going on. Hmm. And then you see Kelly Preston in the background, like, kind of winking at him. There's a lot of girls who are looking at him and shit. You know, it's, there's the high school goings-on that don't actually go on but do in movies. And then he sees one of their other friends whose name I have, like, on... Oh, nope, there it is. Vandenberg, played by Stuart Charno. It's... Good God. Uh, but... He's like, yeah, yeah, I just saw him. It's like, what? He's still in the shop. 
And then Dennis is like, why is he still in the shop? He's like, oh, buddy, Rostenberger, whatever the fucking character's last name is, because it's not IMDb, has his lunch. I know. I know that in a lot of movies, especially high school movies, characters are played by actors who are a lot older than they are. But up until up until this point early in my life, the first time that I watched this movie, I had never seen a character that was played by an actor who looked so out out of their element as William Ostrander as Buddy. The man is 27 years old, but he looks at least 40 because he's size-wise a thousand times bigger than anyone else in the movie, including his homies. And his and, and those ridiculous pointed mutton chops oh, yeah. that, he that he has. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. See, my note was that, well, not my only note, but my note was that to me, this weird cross between Jim Morrison and John Travolta, I felt like he's got Morrison's vibe overall in like Travolta's face. This is like what I would say. Jim. So, yeah, Michael Denaire goes on to do some weird shit after that, who played Moochie. But, like, Stephen Tash did nothing. He did 80s movies, and then he never existed yeah, again. Yeah, and that was my note uh, there, because I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, that. yeah, that's the guy from the beginning of uh, Ghostbusters. And I was from like, Ghostbusters. He was so obvious in 80s movies, and then he literally did nothing else that mattered like, after that. Like, this was, yeah. like... Because Ghostbusters comes out in 84, this keeps at 83, so he's probably, I'm like, he had a real big, like, 12-month period there. He's in the John Carpenter, Stephen King film, he's in Ghostbusters, and then he's in nothing else. But he's in them for, like, you know, five minutes. But And for the note of that, like, Michael Denar plays a pretty respectable, and, and I know, again, you're going to have to apologize on the internet for this one. Michael Denar plays a pretty substantial character in my favorite movie of all time, the 1998 remake of Godzilla. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with this one. So I guess it's not. He's in that movie for like almost the whole runtime. So clearly he was coming up, man. He didn't just start. His career did not start and end with Christine, unlike some of the other guys. uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, like some of my biggest grumblings from that is like, oh, it's like he's keeping his lunch from him. And then Dennis comes down and he's supposed to be this all star stud, whatever, whatever, whatever. But he's just like, Arnie, just gra- Arnie, just grab your lunch. Just grab your lunch. And he's like, yeah, take it. And then he pulls out a switchblade and he stabs into it and it just leaks what looks, looks like, like cottage cheese. It's the yogurt. Is it? Because when it drops to the ground, it looks like a can of chicken soup, an apple, and something else. What the fuck is it? Because she made, she said, try to keep it cold because there's yogurt in there. So I assume that. But then what was the rest of the lunch? Because otherwise it's just a can and an apple. She's a terrible mother. Uh, Clearly. So let's let's add that to the notch of terrible parents and Stephen King novels. Yeah, I just assumed that it was the yogurt because she specifically mentioned sure. yogurt, which I don't really know why, but yeah. So, but then I'll add most importantly 
to end the shop scene is like so Dennis knocks or, or, or socks fucking uh, buddy knocks him down and uh, Arnie tries to grab his stuff but then gets knocked down his glasses get broke but as Dennis tries to get up Mooch puts him in this this is the stupidest fucking scene i've ever seen in a goddamn movie especially in a time where like quote unquote homosexual shit was weird but he puts him in a headlock and then just pinches his dick yeah i know that was the same note i'm like right no one would have done that in a fucking fight at the time you're not grabbing another dude's Johnson for shit in the 80s. I'm like, I feel like he's just taking the lead on that one. I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> like grabbing it was, It's a very weird scene. He puts him in a headlock and then just pinches the shit out of his dick. Yeah. It, Even if you were in like, let me ask you an honest question. Outside of just because you might die, give me the top five reasons you just death grip onto another man's dick. <laughs> It's like, you know, you're falling off a cliff and it's the only thing. Yeah, it's like, this is how I saved myself. Uh, that, that's what I got. I feel like that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's probably it. Uh, yeah. I don't have a lot from there until the car. So if you've got something from there, there's like only like 30 seconds. But I don't have a lot from there until the actual car. I think... Yeah, I think that's pretty much where I'm at because my next note is that the odds of this car catching your eye is yeah, like yeah. so because he's because he's yeah especially because it's 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 not even he's not even driving past it on a main road he's seeing or even their driveway he's seeing it through the thicket of a side access to somebody's property yeah, yeah. and even when they're coming onto the property you're still not getting like the greatest look at it and it yes. looks of course like shit and so yeah. which it's supposed yes. to it was, uh, this is the weirdest part to me i would ask bill john and steven for an explanation why is it sitting there being sold and the trunk the hood and every single door is open yeah i guess that is as true. they drive as they, well they drive by you don't see it and then arnie convinces him to back up so he can look at it and as they get there there's a for sale on it and literally everything that could be open is open and not because it's disheveled but just because it's fully open the car was just waiting that's, that's a decision i suppose yeah I, I don't it's even a choice yeah. it's a choice that's what that's probably what they would say oh christine knew yeah i yeah so it's just which i guess it works in a way because it's just like Somehow he like barely sees it, and then he's just like locked in. I mean, it's just yeah. like you know, love it for obsession yeah. at first sight. I guess you know. The smell of a brand new car—it's the finest smell, except for maybe pussy. Yeah, that was, it's hard not to write that one down, but. Yeah, so he's uh, which yeah, and then there's a callback later. Yeah, George LeBay is one of those, you know. Stephen King characters for sure, and but okay, this is the question. What the hell is he wearing? Uh, I I do actually know what this is. Uh, it's a medical backplate for uh, elderly people who have suffered most of their life from uh, what's that spinal curvy condition? Oh, uh, uh, I should know it. Um... Yeah, you definitely should. You fucking college graduate, bitch. Well, no. Uh, I'm thinking osteoporosis, but I know that's the wrong answer. Yeah, and no, spina, um, spina bifida is also not right. No, I know it. Yeah, what the? Um, God, I don't even know. 
But he thinks he's schizophrenia. Hit us up in the chat and tell us how fucking stupid we are because we don't know what the condition when you have a curvature of your spine is. Uh, God, I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, anyway it's, 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 it's this weird... It looks like a vest in the front, but in the back it looks like an instrument fucking carrying device. That's what they actually look like. But it's for if you actually get lucky enough to get there, what you wear as an older person when you have that thing. I've, I've, I've seen them in action before. I'm looking why. at it, I'm like, it looks like a wife beater, but it's called more... It looks like a wife like beater with straps on it, and in the back it's also got metal. Yeah, and I'm like, what is going on here? It's kind of weird, kinky. Uh, yeah, so I'm like, I don't know what the hell this thing is. Um, yeah, and then, okay, from that scene, that's that's all I got. The next thing I got is, like, Darnell. Hold on. Scolios! Oh, yeah, there we go. I knew it was... I can't think of schizophrenia. Close! <laughs> it's scoliosis. Uh, yeah, the, I, I'm at Darnell from here, too, so that's why I think we might as well go there. But, like, he buys the car. There's a whole entire scene that's good but not worth noting because nothing, expe- like, special happens. But, like, uh, Arnie buys the car. Uh, I think one of the things that, like, doesn't resonate with people even our age but definitely not younger than us is he pulls out from the inside of his jacket a literal-ass peachy sized folder that has his checks in it so he can write a check for the car uh which yeah fuck that um but he buys the car they go back home and his mom again being just like the most ridiculous character in the entire fucking world is all mad at dennis is like how could you let him buy this car i didn't let him i tried to stop him well, you clearly didn't try very hard. It's like, like maybe your kid wouldn't be a piece of shit if you weren't a piece of shit. Uh, but yeah, no, then the, his parents, like, exile him from having the car there. It's like, we're not going to license your car, and you also definitely can't keep it here. Which they double down on later, even after they license the car, which is weird. But there is no explanation as to why he knows this Darnell character. He just shows up, tries to honk his horn, it doesn't work. So Dennis does instead. And he parks his car, and he knows where to park it. He gets very little instruction and he, yeah, he just parks his car. And then, and then that dude is like, this is the dude that is the most ridiculous character in the entire movie. I thought it was his mom, but as I, as I went on, it's like, he's sitting there and he just yells at them the whole time. And he's just like, there's no smoking in here. I won't allow any smoking. Don't try to put anything over on me. You fuckity fuck, fuck, fucks. And then, and then, uh, Dennis's character is just like, Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but those dudes over at that table, they're smoking. You should probably kick him out. And he's like, you trying to get your friend banned from this establishment as well? Say, and, and it just keeps going. Every time Arnie shows up, like, he gets the green light to be like, yeah, you can pick through things to fix your car. And then as he starts doing that, Darnell's just like, I know I told you you could pick through things to fix your car, but I will not be taken advantage of you, Bob. Yeah. You have to work for me now. Yeah. See, I, yeah. It, yeah, it's one of those things where it's a ridiculous character, and I know him, I think, from the... Great Outdoors, I believe. The great out- you will know him from five or six things, but most noticeably, and most notice- notably, The Great Outdoors. He is Mr. Lundy, the television channel owner in Mrs. Doubtfighter. In Mrs. Doubtfighter. <laughs> yeah, Doubtfighter. <laughs> I am going to make a fucking fighting game, a Mortal Kombat game called Mrs. Doubtfighter, where it's just characters from Mrs. Doubtfire, but as Mr. Uh, but as Mortal Kombat Pierce characters with fatalities. I mean, yeah, you got Pierce in there, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, obviously Mrs. Doubtfires will be the drive-by fruiting. <laughs> yeah, but... But anyway, more importantly, that 
And he is the judge in the 1995 or 6 Mara Wilson remake of Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It's a thing that I talk about later because there is a weird amount of Christmas movie correlation with actors in this movie. But my next one is like, uh, and, and again, uh, there, there are gaps for me for sure. But after that is just like finding out that um, the LeBay character killed himself in the car. Where his brother describes, you know, he died in the car, but not that he killed himself in the car. And then when Arnie rolls up into the garage with Darnell, Darnell says to Dennis, the last person I know who owned a car like that died inside that car. So there's foreshadowing. But yeah, they they, they definitely like the, the big piece on the fact that he actually he killed himself in the car. There's not a good reason why, though. Which is kind of why what we talked about earlier, and I felt like in the movie, you know, they could have played on that more. But then you get more of the story when Dennis goes back and talks to George about like, oh, well, his daughter choked in the back, but he didn't care. Okay. So if his daughter choked in the back and he didn't care, why would he kill himself in the car? But then his wife died in the car. Okay. But he didn't care. So why would he kill himself in the car? So there's not a good reason for why he kills himself in the car, but it becomes a very strong point of the movie going forward at least yeah i do at like least that, to dennis is character yeah i do like that little scene but uh, you know with when dennis goes back just i don't know it gives you a little more backstory i do too i do, do kind of like i that. do too uh, i'm going to bullet point really fast and then you bullet point things like that okay so my next points in the movie so uh i think this is kind of a toxic point but uh the way that the movie portrays it is that dennis gets injured uh, kind of more because he's like surprised that Arnie is with the girl that he wanted to be with. It seems more toxic than it should be because he's so surprised that Arnie is with that person and that's why he gets wrecked. Arnie's response to going to go see him after he's been hurt is the book that says 5,000 Dirty Limericks. Yeah, I've been trying to see you for like three days, but you were always asleep. But the only thing I really have for you is a book of 5,000 Dirty Limericks. And then after that, they go through the whole speech about parenting and everything like that, which ended with, like, I think this if it's in the book, I have questions for Stephen King. But probably the stupidest line I've seen in anything about everything, especially because up to this point, Arnie is just a spoiled ass bitch. Part of being a parent is trying to kill your kids. I'm pretty sure that it is. And it's such a weird line. Like, if it's described more in the book, sure. But in the movie, it's just like, my parents keep trying to control me. They keep trying to tell me what to do, sob, sob, sob. Have you ever wondered if being a parent is just trying to kill your kid? I'm pretty sure that I've heard him quote that in, like, an interview. And I feel like he elaborated. And I don't know if it made sense, but it wasn't, like... In this whiny, like, but he at least had a story behind it, other than the character just being a bitch. Yeah, in the movie. I feel like I've heard okay. him say this when he's talking about, especially when he's talking about it, and he's talking about like revisiting your childhood. I feel like he makes a comment about that, but in in this context, it just kind of sounds whiny. I think. So yeah, yeah. I'm gonna really quick points just because I had a couple, and I get where you're going from, and then we'll go to the pop culture, but. 
out of nowhere, Lee is like, there, there's no explanation to it, really. But Lee doesn't want to fool around in the car because he likes the car more than her, even though that's never happened in the movie um, at all. It's just there. And she's like, oh, and then and then she almost chokes to death in the car and she's never going in the car again. Next scene, because uh, in that scene, uh, Buddy and his friends see him with the girl and they're like, oh, I know where he keeps his car. So they break into where he keeps the car and they destroy it. And then you see an actual really cool scene that's actually very well done with the practical effects of the car just regenerating itself which i honestly thought it happened several times in the movie but they did really good with the practical effects about the car regenerating itself and then the first scene with the car uh which uh john carpenter did on purpose to make it ambiguous because it's shown in the story that maybe not all the time uh Arnie knows that the car is killing people, at least at first, that he specifically made it so that they put a tint on the windows so that the windows were full blacked out in the scene so you couldn't actually tell there was someone in the car. So the first person that he kills is the Mooch character, played by, you know, the excellent uh, actor who ends up in Godzilla. Uh, But in the scene, it's so stupid. They destroy his car. You see this miraculously out of nowhere rebuilt version of the car, and he's like, you aren't mad, are you? And then he gets run over and then split in half. It's like, you just destroyed this man's car. How could that even be a question you're about to have? He took a shit shit on the dashboard. I know, I had the same thing. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, You shit on the dashboard. You're not mad, are you? Pretty sure you're a little steamy. And then what has to be outside of, of course, Christopher Walken as a leading romantic character the most ridiculous thing to ever happen in a Stephen King adaptation is, of course, a character who isn't the Darnell character, whose name is Rudolph Junkins. How is the junkyard owner's name not Rudolph Junkins? That's just a little too on the Missed fucking opportunity. How is this... And, and I love Harry Dean Stanton and like his and his character in this is honestly mostly boring, which kind of sucks, especially because it wraps up kind of lame because he shows up in the last 30 minutes of the movie and then is just there for it. Uh, but Rudolph fucking Junkins. How is that not the junkyard? It's, yeah. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, then the car kills a bunch of people. There's an explosion. I, I have this is like the note of this isn't supposed to be a small town. Whether it's Detroit or California, there's a gigantic gas station fire and explosion. And then a car that drives for what can probably be described as several miles while on fire, running down another person. Literally nobody seems to notice. Rock Ridge, California. So I don't know. Yeah, it's not. Rock Ridge, that is correct. But nobody seems to notice. There's all of this going on. The guy gets run over. And then nothing happens. It rolls into Darnell's shop smoking. And he has to call it in. He's the person who calls in the fact that this flaming car that is now smoking rolls into his shop. Like, I understand it's like back roads looking and shit, but I don't know. It it was just, it's, I don't know. Again, this movie is a movie gets a positive grade from me, but it is so absurd and over the top. Yeah, see, see, yeah. To me, I guess I I didn't, well, no, let me just go down to what I got left. Yeah, so, um, okay, one thing I have to note, he says, Arnie, at some point, I think this is when the guy saving Lee 
Um, do I? Th- yeah, I think that's what it is. When he and runs, he, like, get your hands off her. And he said, t- yeah, he says, get your goddamn hands off her. And I'm like, this is pre Back to the Future. I'm like, you, you guy, get your goddamn hands off her. I'm just like, I was getting a whole vibe there, which was just obviously coincidental, but. You know, came I back. Love that me. later. Well, how was I supposed to know he was giving you the Heimlich? I could have given you the Heimlich. Yeah, it is. Okay. Like, well, what does that matter? Yeah, and yeah. So it's it's a weird thing, but um, okay. So there was that. Um, oh, you know, on the note of like he doesn't know because she makes the comment like he's alive or the car's alive or blah blah blah, and he does sure. seem like maybe he he. For his credit, I guess he does seem to think that that's kind of ridiculous. But then she's talking but about right after she says that he gets into the car at her house. It doesn't start. And he's like, come on, everything's going to be the same. So immediately after he's like, that's fucking stupid. He acknowledges like, yeah, my car's alive and I want <laughs> yeah, to That it. was my note of like right after that happens. And like, OK, now he knows because he's like, you could say it's theoretically a coincidence if you're like, oh, come on, baby, please start. And it does. But. You, yeah, you get the sense he knows that she's alive now. Um, and it gets creepier later um, because... Oh, oh, it gets way creepier gets later creepier when, he's in, when him and he picks up Dennis for the fucking New Year's party. Right? I don't, I don't and he know. starts I'm... talking about... He starts talking to Dennis about love and like how you really know you love a person and they support you. They believe in everything you do and you want to put everything to it. And you like every no matter what happens, you know, you're going to be with this person. And Dennis is like, was that how you feel about Lee? He's like, no, you stupid fuck. That's how I feel about Christine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that sets up what my note was, which is that he's get he gets to the. I think he's in the garage. I think he's in the garage and it's beat up again. And I don't, you know, and he just said, he just looks at Christine and says, show me. And I'm like, no, this is many scenes earlier, actually, because the OK show me is after Buddy and his friends first beat up the car before anyone dies. And then he walks in. He's all torn up with Lee. He chases Lee off. And then he's just like coming. He's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix my car? And then as he turns around and he's kind of sobbing, he hears the crunching. And then he turns around and the windshield and some of the fenders are fixed. And he's just like, what the fuck? So he walks around to the front of the car. He rubs his hand. He's like, okay, show me. And that's the first time you see on screen that the car can Right, regenerate. which is creepy to me because it feels like he's like watching his girlfriend like undress or something, which I'm just like. Sure. No, that, it, it's show. honestly exactly the vibe they're trying to give off. It's like, okay, show me what you can do, you sexy, sexy thing. And um, yeah. So to the other note where I was talking about, uh, and this is, this is one of the scenes that I thought was the most ridiculous is, um, when he's having the conversation with Dennis in the car and he's like, this is how I feel about it. And it's like, Oh, that's how you feel about Lee. And he's like, no, you stupid fuck. This is how I feel about Christine. And then all of a sudden they're not in the car anymore. That scene with them in the car and him talking about how much he loves his car is over. And Dennis is just using a screwdriver to carve Darnell's tonight into Christine's hood. Oh it's yeah. Out of nowhere. Yeah, they don't pull just... over anywhere. They're in the speeding car. And then all of a sudden, He's at the side of the car carving something into it. I'm like, yeah, it was kind of an abrupt switch. So, um, okay, let me do my last couple and then kind of wrap it. Okay, so let's see. The um, okay, I mean, I have to say it's like the same scenes that that you sort of critique, but the the bully chasing scene. Well, that's kind of the build up, and then 
And then you get, yeah, you get to the gas station and holy shit, when that, that really blows up. And, you know, but then the best part of the movie, you know, for me, is, is just, you know, Christine's coming out on fire. You get the theme that starts up and I'm like, you get the John Carpenter theme maybe for the first time. Well, you I mean, it earlier, but that is the part where there is literally no other audio. You you get that John Carpenter theme earlier, and it's great. But I will I will agree with you that, that is one of the best parts of it because they're literally you you don't even get the car sounds really at the time. You just get the John Carpenter audio as Buddy is running away and flaming Christina tailing him to the point where there's not even fanfare over Christine running over Buddy. There's just the car moving and then a body rolling out from underneath it covered in fire. Yeah, I noticed that that they don't even really it's it's sort of anticlimactic in a way how he dies. But I but I kind of like it, too. Yeah, but but it's it's, kind of the best way to do it because it's so just it's it's anticlimactic. Sure, but it's so evident. It's just. Yeah, no, I like it, though. Yeah. um, To me, like that's that's the movie like that's just. I love that scene, and um, and so and it's a great theme. And the, so the, the one thing I would say is that oh, around this time, I'm pretty sure I hear the same exact sound effect that is in Halloween. It's in Halloween several times, but it's near the beginning of the movie um, in Halloween when they it's, uh, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, anyway, you know the psychiatrist, whatever he's. Um, He's going to pick up. Um, he's got the nurse in the car. They're well, supposed Loomis to pick up Michael Myers. Donald Pleasant yeah. is the actor. Yeah, Donald Pleasant. I think Donald's through the one. But yeah, yeah. So and anyway, they're picking up Michael Myers or whatever they're supposed to, and then the gates open, I think. And and anyway, so he's escaped and he jumps over the car, and it makes this weird little synthy kind of noise. <laughs> it's like, and then it, it makes it several times later. But I hear almost the same exact sound effect right around this scene when it's driving and i'm like i feel like that's the exact sound but not that it you know Maybe. i wouldn't be shocked but it's only like once so but but anyway uh the, the one thing that i will say is that um i like overall i like the ending uh you know crushing you know using the um sure. the equipment whatever but it it does feel oh and the one thing i really do like is that Christine shows up after she scratches in on the hood. Um, Christine shows up. But, yeah, the windows are tinted. So at least I did. You feel like it's just Christine. Like it feels like Arnie's not there. That kind of flash of Arnie. And then then he says, like, I don't know, you shitters or something like that. And I was like, oh, I forgot. Like he's in. So I did like that bit where you think, oh, it's just Christine. But no, he's full blown fucking nuts at this point, more than you've ever seen him. And uh, and I did like that. It's just that all of a sudden he's dead like two minutes later. It's just very abrupt. But I still like it. But, yeah, that was it was a little abrupt with that. But and I thought the last thing I'll say is that um, I did like the psych at the end when they're in the the cube is there and then it starts to just kind of flex a little bit. Well, yeah, but then there's also the uh, the radio starts playing. But then yeah, the radio starts playing and it's just a dude walking in the background. He's like, I did like I did like um, the only two notes I had for the end of the movie were a note that's something that I thought was kind of ridiculous. And then what I think is probably my favorite line from the whole movie. But the thing that I thought was kind of ridiculous is like, I don't know if you know this, but 
driving a bulldozer is incredibly fucking difficult. And it kind of tied into a lot of other things like Arnie. There's no explanation why Arnie knows how to fix everything. Even the stuff before, like, why does he know how to completely remodel a car, even without the car doing itself? But why does Dennis just know how to drive a bulldozer? It's not it's not just a steering wheel. It's a lot of knobs and levers, and it's very difficult. And, and like, it, he could know. There's no reason for him not to know. There's just no explanation for it. Yeah, I mean, and then, he could be like a farm kid or something. Who knows? Yeah. And then, of course, what I think is the best line in the fucking movie is uh, Harry Dean Stanton's... Uh, unfortunately not aptly named Rudolph Junkins. The some things can't be helped. And some people too. And that's very true. Yeah, I did like that line. It's a yeah. very good line. Yeah, I did like that. Uh, I don't have a lot of pop culture. And like I said, there's one that I'm going to have to kind of get your feedback on. But let's dive into the pop culture. Uh, Allison... Ponthier, Ponthier, she's kind of a that folk revival type of pop musician. Actually, her music's really good. I like a lot of it. But she has a song called Auto- Autopilot, which has a lot of Christine vibes, not just the song, but the music video. The entra- entering song, uh, ver- verse into the song deals with, like, I shouldn't have watched Christine alone. If my stepmom would have tried to put me in that car, I would have never passed 16. Uh, so it's got some pretty pretty good notes on it, but then the music video literally kind of shows Allison's character uh, basically goes on dates with her car, ends up marrying her car. So it's got that love affair sort of vibe vibe to it. Uh, but what I had to call out to it is the car that she uses is a 1959 Thunderbird. And in in talking about using the Fury. Uh, Stephen King went out of his way that like it was a forgotten car that didn't get its send off and also a car that was beautiful but wasn't redone a whole ton of times. He specifically picked the Fury instead of something like a Thunderbird because he didn't want everyone to go out there and see a car and go, oh, Christine. So it was kind of funny that what they did use was a Thunderbird. Yeah. 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 Uh, My other pop culture note is that like literally everybody in this movie has been in several Christmas movies, which is fucking weird. Uh, I'm not going to list names because I didn't write them down, but the guy who plays the George LeBay character is, of course, the uh, shovel murderer guy who's actually super nice from Home Alone. The guy who plays Darnell is from uh, Miracle on 34th Street, the remake. There's a whole bunch of them from bullshit, even Hallmark movies, but there are a lot of people in this movie who are in Christmas movies. And I understand that that's just for the amount of career that these that a lot of these people have had that's just normal but i also have to call out the fact that the the actress who plays lee who was a get for this movie has a twin a twin sister identical who she trolled john carpenter with throughout the whole production of the movie her twin would show up just to fuck with john carpenter all the time and then the actress who played lee adrian paul i think is her name would show up and be like yeah, I haven't seen you all day. I don't know what you're talking about. But neither one of them really went on to do much after this. Uh, Adrian Paul specifically was in a bunch of really shitty B movies for the rest of her career. Yeah, neither. Yeah. Although I yeah. guess I did hear that the guy who played Dennis and the guy who played Arnie both 
apparently became directors at some point because that's when Arnie when... Arnie specifically is an exceptional television director. He's done episodes of Stephen King adaptations as well as Lost, a bunch of other. She's a very good director. Um, and then the last one. For the pop culture, like I said, I, I haven't seen the movie, so maybe you can touch on it more. But apparently there's a big connection between uh, Christine and the final, or at least as it is now, the final Halloween movie, Halloween Ends. The director, David Donald Green, even responded to suggestions that they were similar, at least in story, that... Uh, he, as he put together Halloween Ends, he didn't just want to make it the, the, the best ending to Halloween. He also wanted it to be a homage to all of John Carpenter's work. So he acknowledged that there were some Christine similarities there. Like, I don't know if it's just going to be conjecture from you, but I haven't seen the movies at all. What do you remember seeing that maybe is that connective tissue that people are seeing? Yeah, so I'm just like, I, uh, you know, on, on first hearing this, it's like, okay, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, mostly speculating. I mean, <clears throat> you, you do have, I don't know, because you have, um, the, essentially, if you've seen Halloween Ends, you, you know that Michael Myers is not really the star of the film. Uh, it's, Hidden in Corey, I believe, who's like, he's kind of, I don't know if he's nerdy, but I think he's bullied. He's bullied and, um, and I guess he does become like a killer because you think for a while he's a sent, I think he puts on the mask and you think, and I thought that was an interesting idea. I'm like, okay, maybe they're going to lean with that. Maybe Michael Myers isn't even going to be, but they don't really. They kind of hold back on that. But so he come. He becomes like a psycho, I guess. I mean, so there's that similarity. The only other thing I can think of is that it ends in a. I think it ends in a junkyard as well. I believe, um, because they're dumping. I don't remember how they get it there, but they they dump his body into this shredder thing and so it, it's supposed to give you the you know there's no way he's coming back from this sure, i mean that's, that's like the mildest of connections i don't know maybe i'll have to no, watch it someday well yeah but i just don't i can't imagine there's a real i mean i don't know i i, I can't imagine there's a real obvious i mean maybe there could be something really big i'm missing but I just don't see how it would be. No, it just seems like there has to be one if the director is acknowledging it. But but, but sometimes it can be so so minute that I I don't know. I mean, it's sure. some directors put stuff in. You're like, oh, okay, well, I didn't really, I didn't really get that. But um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I mean, both killers get you know crushed or slivered, and I, I don't know. But. Send us an email. Um, I only saw it once, and I didn't really like it. So, I don't know. wasn't really paying that much attention. <laughs> so, if you haven't seen it, don't watch it. Um, just see 2018. And, uh, or if you, you know. I, I, now, we, 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 I can't afford any rants, but I could, I could do one. But that'll be the Patreon clip. Um, no, I think that's all I got. So, you got Children of the Corn next, uh, which we're excited to do. 
Uh, like we mentioned, we have a plan, and we are going to stick to it as much as possible, even if the first YouTube drop is not as good as we want it to be. Outside of that, Johnny, do you have any uh, notes, any any advice for our listeners to lead their lives with? Anything you would like to say to them? Stay cool. You bro. haven't mentioned Cops at 19 in like two episodes. Maybe it's that's, Oh, yeah, that's right. Cops at 19. I'm wearing the uh, based on the novel by Stephen King. And I realized that uh, they have a hat. And I, I feel like I'm always wearing a hat. I need the based on a novel by Stephen King because like... I'm just going to say you're you're always talking about trying to get me something from cots at 19 you know i wear hats that seems like the easiest one to get me man i know i'm like i was talking about that i'm like i do i mean we need to get you some some shit so yeah that's uh that's all we got uh, uh, I, I have a surprise. I have, I'm going to announce the surprise, but hopefully I'll have the surprise in hand so we can knock it and announce it on YouTube. But I have another hopeful potential sponsor and uh, a gift for you coming up soon, Johnny. So uh, you and listeners, look forward to that. Look forward to that okay. drop. Okay. Surprise. Oh. Thanks. Well, uh, Johnny, if you're if you're good, uh, let's sign off. Uh, we hope everyone enjoys continuing to listen, uh, and we'll see you next time for the Children of the Corn. <laughs>